So I'm curious if anybody heard about the beautiful female celebrity who was seen at a sporting event with a talented professional athlete. Say, Terry, are you kidding me? Who hasn't heard of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? Who? I was talking about Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. It was all over the news in 1952. 71 years ago, it's all anyone can talk about. Monroe was the most famous female today. Jumpin' Joe, the most famous athlete in the world. Sadly, 10 years later, Monroe died at age 36 of a drug overdose. Fast forward to 1997, DiMaggio was a long-retired, reclusive character who was still mourning Monroe, even though they'd only been married for a year before she moved on from him. And in 97, two years after his death, DiMaggio was at an awards banquet where he was being honored. President Clinton wanted him at his table. He didn't want to sit with Clinton. Steven Spielberg, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Muhammad Ali stood in line to shake DiMaggio's hand. He was the man. And the speaker for the event talked about how DiMaggio should be on the short list for the man or woman of the century. Now think about that. What happened in the 20th century? Well, there was World War II, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, Churchill, discovery of drugs that saved millions of lives. We went to the moon. But what had Joe done to earn his place on the list of the person of the century? Well, he did play a kid's game for a living. He did live largely for himself. He was said to have supported a a hospital for kids, and he did lend his name to a wing, but he gave 100 bucks to the hospital. His biographer wrote, and this is a a friendly biographer, not an unfriendly biographer, for the most part, Joe wouldn't give anything away, not even a signed ball. If the hospital officials wanted an autographed DiMaggio baseball for fundraising, they had to buy them like everyone else. So the announcer, after putting him on the list of the person of the century, thanked him in front of all these celebrities for showing us a way. And I was reading that thinking, what way exactly? And I can't speak of the character of Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey. I know that history records that Joe DiMaggio seems to have been a man ruined by the worship he was given and received. And I know if the Lord hasn't returned by then, in 50 years, probably way, way less, it's going to be Taylor and Travis who? And this is not to mock them or belittle them, but to position them in proper perspective. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. This summer, I buried my dad after a long life of 92 years. He came from humble beginnings. He went on to travel the world, see and do a lot. But in the end, he could not feed or care for himself. He couldn't move from his bed. His only hope was in the gospel. He died with that hope. Now, he's gone from us, but he remains alive forever. Last week, I buried my granddaughter. She lived just minutes after birth. Her life mattered as much as my dad's. Both lives were short. From eternal perspective, both lives were short. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So the stupid stuff that bothers us, worries us, captivates us, is the stuff that will pass away. It is the dust of death. The will of God has to captivate us and motivate us and liberate us. It's what will last. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. I'm going to read 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So John's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to his dear friends, to his beloved. This is not evangelism. This is not scared straight. This is discipleship. He's already told them that they're to love God and love people. 
love one another. And now he's telling them they're not to love the world. He's given them the positive vision. He's given them the contrasting negative one. Do this, don't do that. And if you've ever taught anything, you know it's really helpful when describing what to do to describe its opposite. So if you're teaching someone to shoot free throws, you say you want to pronate, you want to shoot like this, you don't want to supinate because it'll rim out. So it can be really helpful when explaining what to do to explain what not to do, and that's what John is doing here. Don't do this, not because the Christian life's about the negative, but because the negative, what God's against, can help us understand the positive, what God is for. It can warn us from diversions off the good path. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. That's the kind of life that God is for. And so he's against the empty, silly stuff that doesn't last and really doesn't even satisfy in the short run. So let's walk through this important passage. Don't love the world or the things in the world. The, the word world is used three ways in Scripture. One of the ways to describe planet Earth, the other is to describe people on planet Earth. So John 1.10, Jesus was in the world, the planet. He made the world, the planet, yet the world, people, did not know him. The third way the world is used is what John's using here, don't love the world. He's not saying don't love the planet, don't love people. The world here are the beliefs, the values, the behaviors of people that disregard or directly oppose God. World here means human attitudes and activities in opposition to God. And he's going to unpack what this means in three phrases. But first he warns us, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is just a description of reality. This is the law of non-contradiction. You can't go that way and that way at the same time. And James said it like this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This doesn't mean you can't be tempted or give in to temptation. This is not a matter of perfection in every thought and action. This is about a settled life direction. And James even uses the word, the word adultery to describe an attempt to love God and the world at the same time. I can't be in love with my wife and another woman at the same time. A person could be tempted to have a heart for another person that rivals that of their spouse. A person can become infatuated with another man or woman. But in covenant marriage, you're either committed to that person or to that one. And again, just like in relationship with God, we can and we do sin, but that's very different than wrapping our hearts around rebellion to God, embracing the values and behaviors that oppose Him. Um, I've had people say to me, literally, I've fallen out of love for my spouse, I've fallen in love with someone else. And the use of the word fallen is convenient because it applies no agency. It just happened. I never had anybody say, you know, I willfully broke the promise I made to my spouse and I began to love this other person. It's, I don't know what happened. I just fell out of love. Like a kid who climbs a tree and then falls from a tree and says, I don't know what happened. I, I didn't mean to fall. Well, you didn't fall up the tree. You meant to go up it. So when people say, I didn't mean to fall in love with her, well, you didn't mean not to. So we can't love God, what he says is true and valuable, to believe and value and do. At the same time, love the world, which has opposite beliefs, values, and behavior. Just like you can't love two people with covenant marital love, it's impossible. So remember how John began this letter. We can and we must mess up, fess up, move on. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will, if we confess he will forgive our sin debt. He will cleanse our sin stain. This is very different from what he's describing here. This is not mess up, fess up, move on. This is wrapping your hearts around what's contrary to the will and ways of God. 
And now he describes in some detail what this love of the world looks like. And he uses three descriptive phrases. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. And these are concise descriptors of a heart that's wrapped around the world. So let's define some terms he uses from a biblical rather than a common or cultural perspective. Lust, flesh, eyes, and pride. Often, nowadays at least, lust is not seen as a bad thing. It's given a positive spin, like a lust for life, or even a lust for power, money, pleasure. But biblically, lust is bad, and in the real world, unbridled lust always has bad outcomes. Always. James says each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. That's the same Greek word for lust. Then after desire, lust has conceived, it gives birth to a baby called sin. And when that sin grows up, it brings death. Unbridled lust always has bad outcomes. Desire is not automatically bad. He specifies evil desires. So we are to desire God. We're to desire the good of others. We're to desire holiness and many other good things. This is desire gone bad. This is lust. Not wanting what we're made for, not wanting what God wants for us, but a desire for what God does not want for us. Flesh, the, the Greek word is sarx, is like the world, is a word used in more than one way. So it could refer in, in the Bible to our physical bodies, our, our flesh, or to our whole persons, who we are as a person, mind, heart, all of us. In Acts 2.31, Luke's write that Jesus was resurrected and his flesh did not suffer corruption. It's often used to describe human nature and inclinations in opposition to God. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise by human perspective. Sarks, flesh, fleshly, worldly perspective. The world, the flesh, sees things differently than God does. They measure differently. And Paul wrote in 519, in Galatians 519, the works of the flesh are obvious. Then he lists a whole bunch of bad stuff. You can read those. The flesh is opposition to the spirit, to the things of God. And the eyes, the eyes, of course, are the physical organs by which we see things. But in the Bible, they're also this pathway, this venue by which desires enter our hearts. Death and destruction are never satisfied. Neither are the eyes of a man or a person. So death doesn't say, I'm full. Had enough, thank you. And the eyes, unbridled lust, just says, give me more, give me more. There's a tragic and realistic movie about how the eyes can feed the flesh. It's called The Ticket. And in the film, a blind man lives in a, a fulfilling and loving relationship with his wife and his son. They have a simple home, simple car. He has a simple job, simple clothes. And they're happy and they're pretty much content with their lives. And his eyes are, are literally dark to the potential discontent all around him. And then he miraculously gains his eyesight is downhill from there. He becomes discontent with his wife, his life, his job, his clothes, his car, his house. And in the end of the movie, after throwing away all that was valuable and precious, he loses his sight again. And the film ends with him alone in darkness and despair. And as it fades, all you see is shadow and you hear heavy, anxious breathing. Yeah, it's, it's not a great date night film, in case you're wondering. <laughs> But it's descriptive of what the Bible means by the eyes in this context. They scan for and they allow discontent to enter our hearts. And if we don't control it, it will ruin us. Now the eyes can also, in Scripture, scan for and take in the glory and goodness of God. We can do what the psalmist did, cry out to God, Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. Look and see. So we can scan for discontent with our eyes. We can scan for the glory of God. 
And so this is more than just don't look at bad stuff. Don't look at pornography. And don't look at pornography. You shouldn't. It's bad for you. It's also about looking at things that may not be bad or evil in themselves, but with a heart that lusts for more than what God has granted. I don't want my life. I want theirs, or I want that part of theirs. I have to have more or different from what God has given me. And then our eyes have started collaborating with the flesh to do the harm John is talking about. We've dethroned God as the Lord of our hearts. I want to be married, or I want to have kids, or I want to have different marriage or different kids. I want to be healthy, or I want a different kind of health than I have. I want their gifts. I don't want my temptations. I don't want my struggles. But what are you going to do with all that? These are normal temptations. But if you give in to this, it's going to ruin you. Or you can scan for the glory of God. You can choose contentment. And then pride isn't automatically bad. I frequently tell my kids and grandkids I'm proud of them. And they know what I mean by it. It encourages their hearts. Pride here is a declaration of autonomy from God. But when I say I'm proud of my kids, they know I'm grateful to God. I recognize his goodness. And John writes of the pride of one's possessions, which means disregard for the lordship of Christ. It's thinking that we've earned or deserved what we had. So this includes not just physical things, but we also possess gifts and abilities and opportunities and relationships. All kind of things we can be proud about, things that we've been given. In the biographical movie of George Foreman, in the opening scene, they have virtually no food. They're sharing a single hamburger. And his spiritually-minded mom gives thanks to God for the provision. Later on, grown-up foremans become wealthy and spiritually empty. And before this lavish meal he's prepared and paid for at his beautiful home, his mom suggests thanking God for the food. And George says, I paid for the food. So that's what John's addressing, that very attitude. And it may not be that blatant, but any form of that attitude is the dust of death. It's the stuff that's passing away. Paul said it like this, Who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? And Foreman said, I bought that food. Yeah, who gave you life, breath, opportunity? Who makes the rain to fall and the crops to grow? Who's holding you in existence right now? What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. And why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So let's look at the three things John said describe a love for the world and not for God. And, but I want to use these as training tools, not fear tactics. And what I mean, we're not going to look at these and just be nervous about falling, in, falling prey to this. Uh, this, is, this is about discipleship. I want the will of God. Most of you want the will of God. You want to experience His goodness in your life. So here's what that doesn't look like. Good to know, John. Thank you. So let's think about how to avoid these things to recognize what's not God, not so we live in the negative, so we can thrive in relationship with God and with each other. The lust of the flesh. Now, we automatically think this is about sexual sin, and that's part of it, but it's just one part of it. It's any form of unhealthy discontent. It's an unbridled desire for more other than what God has given us. There is a healthy discontent. We ought to be discontent with anything less than full obedience to God. We ought to be discontent with apathy or laziness. I should never be content with my relationship with Christy. I should be content with her. I shouldn't be content with how I treat her. I should want to do better. Healthy discontent can drive us towards faithfulness. The lust of the flesh is the pursuit of more and different. It's unhealthy discontent. It's the opposite of being content with godliness. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing in the world, we'll take nothing out of it. It's a kind of contentment that's independent of circumstances. We're never going to get there in this life perfectly, but this is the direction we're supposed to be headed. 
Paul said in Philippians 4, I know how to do with little, I know how to make do with a lot. And, and, and you could say, well, who doesn't know how to make do with a lot? A lot of people don't. When they get a lot is when they forget God. It's when they have little is when they remember him. So he's saying, I don't forget who the Lord is, whether I have a little or a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the opposite of the lust of the flesh. It's nourishing contentment through the gospel. The lust of the eyes is very closely tied to the lust of the flesh, but I think about it in terms of moving through life, scanning for reasons to be discontent, looking for reasons why God's not to be trusted. Look at all that he's kept from me. Now, clearly there can be wrong things that we desire, we can look at and desire, but there's also things that aren't bad, but they're just things that he hasn't granted us. And so we can say he's held them from us. And Proverbs says our eyes are never satisfied. They scan the world for more and more and more. And as we move through life, we can't leave the truth of God behind us. We have to see him and his lordship in everything. So we can gain perspective. Maybe we have a quiet time. We spend time in the Bible and prayer, whatever you call it. Now, I would say hopefully you are spending time in the Bible and prayer because if you're not, you have virtually no chance to maintain perspective. But even if you do that, you move out of your time in Scripture and prayer, and you begin to leak immediately. You have church community. You're in worship, small groups. Meeting with a friend, you gain perspective. Or even something difficult or terrible can happen, and you get, you get a jolt of perspective. I've done lots of funerals, and I've come away, and people get a jolt of perspective. And you see more clearly, and then we leak. It leaks. So we need continual inflow of truth. As we walk through lives, our eyes see what we don't have. And then the fleet become a flood and contentment is gone and God's not to be trusted. It can be very subtle, but it's powerful. It can be a really small leak. But if it's a small leak and there's nothing coming in on a regular basis, you're going to get empty pretty quick. Psalm 73 describes this whole process in detail. First is a statement of faith. The psalmist said, God is good to his people. He believes this is true. But then he says, but I have to confess, I almost slipped and fell. But what happened? Well, I, I looked around. I saw the the prosperity of the wicked. I saw their thriving lives. I mean, there, there's even evil and violent people out there. They care nothing for God, and they're doing great. What's going on here? And then the cause of his near fall, his, the stinking thinking as he looked around, scanning for reasons to be discontent. He said, my efforts to obey and please God are for nothing. My life's terrible compared to this. I don't get this. And then he returns to sanity. Then I entered the sanctuary. He went back into the presence of God. I understood their final destiny. It's not going to be good for them. They don't have it better than me. I'm not seeing all that's true here. And then he gives his same perspective. When I became embittered and my inmost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll take me up into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. That's perspective. So think of the lust of the eyes like a wild animal. He said, I was like an unthinking animal towards God. He's looking around. And he's looking at his life. He's looking around. A wild animal scans, looking for something. And when they see it, they don't go, hmm, I wonder what I should do. Instinct and control, boom, they're going. We're not animals. 
We're image bearers of God. We don't scan with our eyes like a beast. We look around and we see the reality of God in the world around us. The third way to love the world is pride in one's possession. Again, this is not just stuff you own, but it could be personal skills, gifts, even opportunities. This is clearly living in opposition to God who is the creator, giver, owner of everything. It's just really silly to take pride in what we've been given instead of gratitude and faithfulness. Those are two responses to gifts. So be careful, though, the temptation is to think this doesn't apply to me. Because you say, pride in one's possessions, I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot to take pride in. This is a universal trap. Last week, I was pulling into, onto a busy street in Denver, trying to navigate traffic, four lanes out here. So I had to pull up onto the sidewalk just to see. And to my left, at least 25 feet away, um, was a guy, and um, he looked angry. He looked like he was angry at me. And he looked like he had been on the streets, looked like he lived on the streets. And so I hadn't gotten in his way, but, he, but somehow I guess I was on the sidewalk he was eventually going to get to. So I rolled my window down, and I just said, hey, sorry, do you want to go by? I started backing up, and he cursed at me. Now, he didn't look like he had much, but you don't have to have much to have pride of what you possess. You say, what did he possibly possess? Well, he possessed his rights, and somehow I violated his rights. So the issue here is not whether you have stuff or not, or you think you have gifts and opportunities. It's, it's about a perspective that sees God as the giver, owner, Lord of all things, or whether life is ultimately about us. And now we're back to where we started. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. All this stuff that he's talking about is the dust of death. Now it may glitter like gold, but it's destined to pass. And the one who does the will of God remains forever. What's the will of God? What's what he's been telling us? So far in this letter, love God, love people is what Jesus said is the great commandment. Love God, love people. Love God by honoring him as Lord of your life. Love God by loving the people he's put in your life. Don't love the world. Don't do this. That's the dust of death. Do this. This lasts forever. At the memorial for our granddaughter, I said to my kids, feel what you feel. What you feel is real. But you need to see all that's real here. All that's real here. It's real that her life was too short. It's real that we have a little casket here, but there's more that's real than what you're seeing. You may feel like God's cheated you in some way. He is not. You may feel like Others have more or better than you do. And in some ways, they may very well have more than you do. But again, if you have Christ, you can say with the psalmist, and I would say you have to say with the psalmist, I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And I'm going to read it for probably the sixth time. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's pray together. Talk to God. Listen to God. Cry out to God. 